Hello everyone, this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the Sea Table podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Michael Sattler, founder and managing partner at Rook's Nest Ventures, a London-based early-stage venture capital firm that invests on the intersection of technology, media, and entertainment. Before Rook's Nest Ventures, Mike founded and led Rook's Nest Entertainment, a successful production company of indie hit films like My Brother the Devil, The Witch, and Obvious Child. Naturally, the conversation starts by breaking down how the film industry works and what was it like to see the rise of Netflix from the seller's side. Then, we move on to their investment phases and how it has evolved over time, why media infrastructure is one of the biggest opportunities right now, the value of communities, and so much more. Please enjoy this conversation with Michael Sackler. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Sea Table podcast. Um, of course, thanks for having me. To kick off, why don't we, you walk me through the history of Rugnax Ventures and most importantly, yeah. Rugnax Entertainment, which is where you started. Yeah, so starting with Rooksness Entertainment, I f- uh, founded the company in 2010, having studied film at university and was really passionate about film and uh, wanted to get into that industry. And I was originally actually in the NGO world for, for a little while and uh, decided to make the move. And after talking to some friends, we saw that there was an opportunity rather than going through the, the sort of LA route and, and, and working your way up there as a producer, it was, uh, made sense to start in, in, in London. And there was an opportunity to finance films in a way that wasn't done there was done a lot in the us at the time and it wasn't really done much here in the uk which was basically equity financing of films of of small indie films and uh, when we started we we were one of very few players uh, in the market doing that for for small indies and so we got off the ground pretty quickly i think by 2011 in, in in 2011, we shot our first film that went to 2012 Sundance and uh, we followed it up over the next five years with a further nine films. The first one was uh, was was fully produced by us and the subsequent ones were, were mostly financed. So we weren't doing it sort of end to end. But then since then, and, and I left in 2015 and ended up setting up Rooksness Ventures and, and I'll explain that in a second. But since then, we've a lot of the films that we started to develop whilst I was there have now started to go into production, uh, you know, seven years later, some of them. Uh, it just takes a long time. But we waited, yeah, six, seven years, and then all of a sudden, two go at the same time. It's typical. So I left in 2015 for a number of reasons, but all fairly positive, left on a good note with the, with the company. And my business partner, Julia, uh, now runs it and is, is doing a tremendous job. And then I, I messed around for a year trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I uh, came back to the sort of media storytelling content side of it. And I'd been angel investing since 2013 or so. So I'd done by that point about 15 direct investments and obviously had done 10 films where there are some translatable skills around investing in, in film. and was like, yeah, okay, well, I, I think I can, I can start a VC at the intersection of media and technology. I'm really interested in the convergence uh, of those two industries. I was in the film business at the, during the, the rise of Netflix as a real power player in that business. And the same with Amazon. Um, very interested. I would love to invest in the net, next Netflix. That was what I was thinking. I was like, that would be great. So I started the VC. We're a 28 million pound fund um, based out of London, Seed Stage, uh, Media Tech. And I think, you know, the, something that, that we'll probably talk about at a later point in this conversation is how the thesis has changed. Early on, the thesis was very much because of my background as a, as a producer, I was not scared of content, you know, and content companies. That's very much different now. How we look at it is slightly different. But yeah, it's been, uh, and so going from film to VC was a, was a great transition. And I, I feel very much at home here now in this market. 
You mentioned something very, very interesting. You saw Netflix from the inside almost, at least on the industry level. What was that like? I mean, it was great for us because we, the way that we positioned ourselves as a company was, and still is, when we're financing, we, we created a very clear cut view of what we wanted to finance. Aside from the creative side, which was incredible, which was incredibly important. It was, we wanted to finance indie films that were, let's say sub $5 million dollars where we could split, there was no senior debt or very little, and we could split the equity three max four ways with other financiers, and we would, we would split the risk. And if there was senior debt, then it was us as the senior debt. And we planned, and the way that we forecasted it was always to do with just taking, the way that film waterfalls work, it's very complicated, and I, I won't, won't get into it here. It gets very, very complicated. But what we realized very quickly was if as an indie financier and producer, you're waiting until your film uh, for box office tickets to provide you with your money, you're in big trouble. You have to make your money selling the film on the market. When the distributor buys it for an advance, you have to make your money at that point. And there are a number of reasons why, not least you know, creative accounting. But that's what we figured out early on. And we realized basically if we see that there's a typical term, which was as the equity financing and the premium of 20%. It was a very standard term in the waterfall. And yeah, you own percentage of the, of the uh, royalties further down. That was always a bonus. That was the gravy. We made our mark recouping the money and making our 20% based on selling the film at the market. And we still we still do that and, and and that's what we aim to do if we get anything more than that the film blows up at the box office and it makes a gazillion dollars and and uh, some of those royalty payments start to come through that's great but we're not counting on it so that was that was always how we how we did it and that requires selling the film for an advance that is of a certain size and prior to netflix and amazon it's always been competitive You know, it's always been difficult to make money in that industry, in particular low-budget indies. And Netflix and Amazon coming in when they did just brought huge amounts more capital to the table. So we were able to sell. At one point, I think I personally invested, and not through the company, I personally invested in a film which financed the film, which sold to Amazon. And at the same time, I think we were selling two films to Netflix. And You know, some of those films never really seen the light of day. There's no way they would have made us money if we had not sold to Netflix. I remember the, the, the negotiation that was happening at the time with one of them where we were looking to sell at the market. I think it was at Toronto for one of the films. And the only offer, significant offer we had on the table was by an indie distributor for North American rights for like a hundred grand. And we needed whatever it was, 600 grand to break even or 500 grand or something. Suddenly Netflix come to the table and they're like, here's a million. And the, the agents were like, it's a competitive situation. You know, it's not, you're going to have to, you're going to have to double it. And they're like, fine, but we get to call it a Netflix original. Okay, fine. Here's two million done. And I don't know if they knew or cared that the next best offer for us was a terrible offer at like 100k and that was the type of firepower that they brought to the table I, I i don't know i haven't been in the industry for a while so i don't know if they're still doing that but they were way overpaying frankly to just get their hands on anything which was great for us really good for us so no complaints there and you could see them they're making an aggregation play and that's that's what's happened Why do you think they were overpaying for content that never saw the light of day? Because if you're an aggregator, you're just gonna want to put all the content you can out there. Yeah, I think as far as we were concerned, it was just they wanted to build up their back catalog. This was still early days. Um, if you remember in the UK at that time, they were just getting started and the back catalog was not good. You know, you had some of the originals like House of Cards and so on. 
but a lot of the films and stuff that you take for granted for being on there now just just weren't there and and they needed to build that very very interesting you're you're focused mostly on indie films but there's this very good model right now in in films that is franchises or using existing ip which mm -hmm. seems at least from the outside more profitable or less risky is that the same on the inside and how do you think about that and, and, and startups yes um it's definitely where the in the film industry has has been heading for the last 20 years frankly and it's it's worked tremendously well for them for most of the studios the thing is it's 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 extremely expensive so the indie side of things ip doesn't doesn't come into it it's just not a thing it takes huge marketing budgets to build ip and maintain it and 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 there is still i know they're plugging into existing ip so for instance when uh marvel launched with with iron man and so on that ip is obviously already existing batman and so on but it takes they're still they still have to build it into a film franchise as such they still have to spend the money to maybe it's not so much creating as much awareness as they had to before but it's still massive marketing budgets i mean the marketing budgets are almost always on those types of films uh, the same size as the actual production budget and sometimes more so it takes huge amounts of capital to do that and i think that it doesn't really translate across industries in that same way because it's really more akin to building a brand than ip per se it is a brand you know marvel is a brand uh, and every film that they do within that it's essentially like they're launching a new brand every time guardians of the galaxy nobody quite knew if it was going to work because it was a smaller franchise or smaller ip and they built that brand phenomenally well so for instance I, I don't know if that necessarily works. It works in commerce, I think, to a degree. But in terms of technology, I don't think it works in the same way. You can obviously, you know, take existing ideas and roll them out in new ways, in new sectors or new geographies. But I don't think that that's comparable to the type of IP you're talking about. I think, if anything, that's probably more comparable to what film and TV do around remakes of foreign language films so you know kind of akin to if i'm if the equivalent between uber and dd you know to be honest with you i don't know which one came first i assume it was uber dd goes okay this can work really well in china same thing works great you know film and tv companies have been doing that for a long time one that springs to mind was that homeland was you know originally an israeli tv production so there are some comparables there, but in terms of IP itself, I don't think it really translates. The way that they build IP doesn't really translate across industries. You mentioned huge budgets. My, my, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if I know how the returns worked for, for your company, but for huge film uh, companies, do they follow like a parallel distribution like venture capital or are they trying to make 20% of their movie? No. So I don't know. I've never worked in this in the in the studio system and it's almost like two different industries. It's a little bit like private equity versus venture capital. There is some crossover there that but in in many ways they're quite different. Um the studio system and the indie system is 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 pretty different. So I've never been on the inside of it. I've sold movies to studios, but we've never I've never worked in the studio system. With that in mind, they do both. So, for instance, for movies that we've sold to studios, they act as just a distributor, and they take their they take their cut, whatever they've negotiated, fifty percent, forty percent, thirty percent, whatever it is. For movies they develop in house, they obviously retain a lot of it. But I I, I don't want to say that I that I know for sure how much how it's carved up. I know that I mean just off the top of it, when you talk talk about gross numbers, uh, gross box office. Normally, at least in Indies, it was a 70-30 split of the ticket price to the to the theaters. I know Disney negotiated like the flip side, you know, where it was like 70% back to Disney or whatever. But you can automatically pretty much knock off 50%. So that's already, let's say your 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 movie grosses 100 million at the, at the box office. 
that's already 50 million that's not yours. Then you obviously get into like, you know, the um, typical carving up of, of, of the waterfall. And, you know, you end up with some not massive, massive profits. And I think that that is reflected in the fact that movie, even there are some exceptions. Disney is probably an exception to some degree, but movie businesses are small parts of the larger conglomerates that own them really um same with the with record labels these are not massive 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 industries even with these seemingly big players big budgets and so on they don't generate huge 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 profits they generate meaningful profits but if you're like you know universal are you really the backbone of uh, Comcast? Sorry, but it's 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 the TV and cable and all the rest of it that that is. What did you learn from the movie business that you wouldn't be able to learn anywhere else, and that you're applying right now to, to venture capital? Um, I don't know if there's anything that I learned that I wouldn't be able to learn somewhere else but I, there are definitely things that I learned. So, you know, for instance, what's pretty cool cutting your teeth in the, in, in the movie business is seeing people uh, come together as a, over a common goal over a short period of time and then disperse again. And uh, it's a really intense period of time, you know, when you're not just when you're filming, but also in, in pre-production and in post-production. And every time you shoot a film, it's, you know, whatever, 50 to 100 people easily, even for small budget films. I think our crew end to end for our first film was probably 70 people. And so, you know, and you're, and, and you're making it and it's, a, you know, in that case, it, the shoot was like, whatever, four weeks. End to end, the process was, I think, for the first film that we did was, was, was 10 months or so. So it's a very short period of time that all of these people from different backgrounds come together to, to making this film and, and, and hopefully making it great and then, and, then, and then disperse again. And it's pretty cool to see that. It's, it's, it's an unusual way. Uh, you literally have to set up a new company every, every film that you make. They're housed in SPVs. And you then have to scale up super quickly you know, very, very, very quickly over a short period of time, four week, you know, six week prep, maybe. So then, you know, you're gradually putting people in along the way. And then, you know, six weeks out, you're adding more. And all of a sudden for the shoot, you're at 70. And then you have to scale it back down again pretty quickly. It's, it's an awesome thing to, to witness. And when a crew is really unified, it's a, it's a cool thing to be a part of. There's a real sense of like you're working on something important it's meaningful and then you get a finished product so it kind of is a might like a, a, a sped up version of building and working on a company over the course of you know 18 months of the development is a really long time but you know the actual production element it's it's not that long and and you know it's, it can be 12 months six months whatever it's it's a microcosm of what it's like to build a company. And, and you see it in, in venture as well over a much longer period of time. Let's switch gears for a bit and go back to Rook's Nest Ventures. Sure. Uh, walk me through how your thesis started and how it has evolved over time. Yeah, so I talked about before my, my thesis was because of my background in film and I was, you know, had seen the rise of Netflix and Amazon in that industry and was just generally, there was, there was a feeling at the time, if there, there was a saying actually that was doing the rounds at the time of every company is a media company. You know, that when, when Facebook and Google particularly were, were being talked of in that sense. And I was just very, very interested to see what comes next. I, I had been for quite a while. Like what happens next in the media industry? What, where are we going to get our content from? What are we, how are we going to uh, consume things? And I'd been investing a little bit as an angel around that. And AR and VR was starting to really heat up. And it was just, I've always been a huge fan of, of games. I've always played games uh, and, and I wanted to 
kind of uh, work in the games industry at different points. So there were all these sort of different interests and, and, and uh, things that I was interested in that came together. And that time I did look at doing like, you know, real estate and public markets and really like just really shifting away from media and seeing if I was interested in other industries that are completely different. And I, I went to, I went to one real estate conference, which was like the sexiest real estate conference you could imagine. And I was still deathly bored. So <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe this isn't for me. There was like, there was a private mountain and it was this whole thing skiing. And I was like, still, I was like, okay, this is not for me. I've got to go back to media. And, and because everyone at the time was talking like content, not so sure, like, you know, you should stay away. I was like, you know what? I've done okay in content. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna shy away from it. And early thesis was very much around marrying technologists with creators, let's say, or creatives. And we have definitely changed since then. But it was a really, really important step for us to take. So, basically speaking, the early thesis was: I'm really interested in media and content, where this is going, and how technology plays out. I want to be at the center of that. I want to be right at the part of that. And so that's where we started investing. And we, we were out in that market that started in 20, really in 2017, seeing what was happening in that market. VRAR was really hot at that time, but we didn't make any investments there. I think, you know, I'd learned from my own personal investing and, and, and also in film, how I like to approach things uh, from an investment standpoint. We were extremely, I wouldn't say cautious, but we dug in deep and we only did two deals, I think, that whole year. And, and part of that was just not seeing the quality of deals that we really wanted to see. And so after the first 12 months, we actually paused and said, okay, something's, something's not right here. Mowley, my partner, had a, had a great idea and had been bugging me to do it for a while, which was to do a really in-depth piece of research. Uh, you know, what do we really want? Instead of like the usual, ah, oh, we invest in media tech and AR and VR and like anything that's kind of hot at the time, we got to really understand what we want to invest in and why. And you know, we're both relatively new to this game. We need to spend some time uh, educating ourselves a lot better not just networking. And we did that. We spent six months researching. We looked at every media company that had exited for over $500 million. There were 113 of them. Uh, we had 80 questions that we researched on each. So there was like 9,100 data points that we ended up with some manually crunched. It was a really long process, but it was really a cathartic and interesting and our poor intern was was worked to the bone um, going through all of that. But it was it was amazing and it was great to see. And at the other end of it, which is why we've really shifted our thesis, there were some things that just became really clear. And some of our findings were basically boiled down to four areas that we needed to focus on. And content, it was hard to find a space for content in those areas. So the first was value proposition. You know, what are you... This is something that to this day was super in on. What, what is it about your company that saves, you know, what, are the, what is the value proposition? Do you save people time? Do you save people money? Do you help make people money? Those are three of the, of the really big ones. There are others as well. You know, what, what is it that you, how are you adding value to your potential customers is critical. You know, if you look back at the innovators dilemma and, you know, it's absolutely crystal clear that, creating convenience for people is the most important value driver. And we, we, we really look for that in a lot of businesses. It's not the only one that we, that we look for, but if you can get that, it's great. The other is mark, conducive market conditions. What we realized is being sector specific, a niche within a niche doesn't work in venture. If you're going to have a niche product, it has to be the entire global population of that niche is a potential customer. Or if you're a social network, most social networks, not all, you know, is it the entire global population? You have to have these massive customer bases. The way I put it is, in media at least, if you're gonna go for a niche, not only can you not go for a localized niche, you can't be like, um, using an example, National Geographic uh, is a great example. You can't be the German National Geographic and be a venture-backable company. Nor, for that matter, can you be second place in your industry. 
that nobody knows. Who, who's the second most important magazine in the natural world covering the natural world? Nobody knows. The, the first the most important is National Geographic. And that's it. And that's what we saw time and time again for niche, for areas that were targeting niches. It's you've got to be the top one globally. And uh, third was defensibility, which is obviously, you know, technology, government regulation is a favorite of ours. If you can, if you can get it, if you can be on the inside brand, network effects, etc. And then the fourth is uh, exit potential. So uh, do you provide an incumbent with, are you a potential competitor to an incumbent? Are you, are you providing an incumbent with an ancillary revenue or, or um, complementary revenue? That sort of stuff. So that's where we ended up thinking. And we realized it was really hard to fit content into, um, particularly into value proposition, because, you know, for instance, one of the value props that we look for is, is this something that people need or want to use every day or every week? People don't need another game. They don't, they may, they might want a new game, but they don't need to play that game every day. Whereas if you're, for instance, and this is where our thesis headed, if you're a game developer, you do need a games engine every day. And that's a very different, it's a very different mindset. So since then, we've really shifted towards what I call media infrastructure, which is, you know, companies that are building, you know, games engines as an example, platforms, tools, that sort of stuff. And that's really where our focus is today. How do you think about startup sourcing that fit this four very specific criteria because we are sector specific and we're working within uh, that type of a niche the funnel has to be as wide as possible basically you know we 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 will look at any doing any initiative we'll tap any kind of ground that we can to make sure that we're that we're the first it's really important right now a lot of we're at the stage now where we're starting to get a reasonable amount of inbound and we've always had lots of inbound, but I mean, in terms of quality, I think from an outbound perspective, we absolutely have to be like any other venture fund across any channel that we can that's relevant to us, whether that's events, whether that's being part of different communities, being available to look up on databases, on you know email address, any cold inbound. We look at everything. We keep the funnel as wide as possible. In fact, we've toyed around with different initiatives around uh, requests for proposals and, 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 you know, always thinking about how can we open this up wider in, in the right way. It's very, very important. We can't be overly selective at the top of the funnel because we're sector specific. There's only so many deals in this sector to go around. The second thing that we think about is around brand. You know, again, being sector specific, it's no use if we are the 20th most recognizable media tech investor. As far as we're concerned, there's only really a handful of other funds that are direct competitors, I would say, and we're on friendly terms with all of them. And we want to make sure it's absolutely imperative to us that we are that we become the 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 best known brand in this space. It's so important for our success because again, like I said, number 2 or number 3 it's a lot harder then to get the best deals because of our specificity and the sector that we look at. So brand building is incredibly important. How we go about doing that? Well, one, there's no better brand building exercise in VC than building a track record. That's incredibly important. Two is how we work with our entrepreneurs and getting good referrals. Three is the community that we're building in Supernode, which is incredibly important to us. And I'm happy to, to talk more about that. And, and there's probably a bunch of other initiatives that I'm missing off. But brand is super important to us. And, and the first pillar of that, in my view, is track record. Perfect. Let's dive a bit into Supernode, which is the community yeah. you guys started. So what was the thought process behind starting that, uh, where you are right now? So the thought process was, and, and, and credit to Marley for, you know, really being the one that's championed the idea internally for a long time. The thought process initially was, some of it was from a brand perspective, you know, to have big names attached to your, you know, to your brand in some way. But really, most of it came down to how to build a platform so that, you know, different VCs will build out platforms in different ways. 
what we wanted to do was acknowledge our the limitations of our own knowledge and capacity as you know there's 24 hours in a day and frankly we're not really experts at much if anything so but what we can do in order to scale both the knowledge and capacity what originally started was thinking about building a really big meaningful group of advisors so not just having an advisory board that's like five or ten people but more like a hundred or even more and that evolved over time and we saw a bunch of vcs have obviously done it well historically most recently village global have done a phenomenal job in fact it, it network has uh, runs throughout their entire dna in terms of even how they invest it's really impressive the names they have on there are really impressive the scope of their network is very impressive and over time it it it, it evolved into being less of a advisory board and more of a broader network and then from the network idea it evolved into wanting to build a community and one thing that was really important to us was and to me specifically was that we it's really important that people didn't see our community as a marketing or as top of the funnel marketing for rooks nest ventures because i think it then loses a lot of credibility and you don't get the value out of it that otherwise uh, that the members of the community would otherwise, because they all know that they're there as part of like a marketing thing for, um, you know, for whichever VC fund. That was really important. I wanted, when I wanted people to interact with the community and, and, and still do, I want them to feel like they own a part of it, that there's no ulterior motive and, and that they can, you know, really feel like they're getting value for their business. And so that's what, that's why we started to build out a community rather than an advisory board or a network that's attached to the VC. And the community is called Supernode and it has a much wider remit than Rooksnest Ventures. It's not limited to media infrastructure. Its goal is to become the, the, the first global media tech community, you know, connecting people from all over the world Gina King is doing a fantastic job of building that for us. And we're, we're at the early stages now. We've run three very successful events prior to the current situation. We're now in the process of getting very close to launching an online platform, which will hopefully, you know, very important to me that it, 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 the platform will be very easily accessible to people. It's, it's not some uh, esoteric platform that nobody's ever heard of. It's built in a way that... In, on a platform that is already used every single day by millions of people around the world. Yeah, so we're really excited for that next phase. We've been hiring out to build out the Supernode team. And, and the focus is on early stage entrepreneurs and on early stage investors initially. Those are the two main members, let's say, of the, of the community, with the entrepreneurs being really the, the, the core focus. And what we want, what we aim to uh, deliver to them is peer-to-peer -peer education and support, which is tremendously important. And we've seen the, the benefits of that through other networks, you know, the ability to talk to other founders and ask them how they've done this or how they've done that. And to have that communication flowing is great. Access to customers and partners, hiring, access to, access to talent, access to investors as well and other things along with that. And then obviously for on the investor side, it's access to those companies, um, potential investments, as well as networking with other investors. So it's really important for us that we, that we curate well with the, with the membership. We've been working hard on that. I think uh, we've now got a newsletter up and running, which goes out on a Thursday, which you guys should check out. Maybe there'll be a link to it in the, in the show notes. Gina's done a tremendous job of uh the newsletters called spotlight and uh, yeah the aim is to become the the premier gl uh, global media tech community do you think at some point in the future that the network could be an extension of the rooks nest ventures value proposition think y combinator yeah. or uh, closer to europe entrepreneur sure. first yeah so so the way that we that we run what we've realized is and we we don't have an answer for it yet for the companies that are really core to the community so the companies that are really engaged 
that are very close to the community, we will act basically as a, as a and I would count automatically the Rooks Nest Ventures portfolio companies as a part of that. We basically found that the best way of getting the most out of the community for those companies that are highly engaged in it is pretty much to act as a concierge service. It's not very scalable, but that's fine by us right now. We want to make sure that, that if, you're, if you're engaging with us and, and our community, that our community engages with you. For example, ahead of the events that we've run so far, which have been really successful, that we've, we've emailed out every single attendee, which in San Francisco, I think was 200 people. In, in London, it was 100. In New York, it was, it was slightly less. But all good, you know, all, all well-curated, good people that, that had a lot in common in the room. You could sense that. But we emailed out personally, individually. We carved up the guest list, as it were, by team members amongst the group. And we emailed everyone independently and said, you know, who, what type of issues are you currently having at your company? What type of opportunities are you seeking? What type of people are you looking to meet and why? And for those that got back to us, we would then, that's a very time consuming process. And we, some people asked to look at the guest list and that was fine. We did that. And other people just sent plain responses. Other people didn't respond at all. And for those that we did, we basically went out of our way. We were, we were working, we were hustling on those nights to make sure that the people that they wanted to connect to were, uh, were that they talked to them. And if we didn't quite manage to do it on the night, then we made sure that we, we did it afterwards. And not quite sure yet how we're going to scale that type of approach. And, 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 and by the way, that approach permeates everything we do on Supernode. So it's not just the events where we'll be high touch. It's across the digital platform. It's across any type of communications with our members. It's really important that we that we do that and and we're we're bringing people on board to help us have the capacity to do it at a reasonable scale you know how how we scale it down the road if the community grows i don't know and frankly right now i, d- I don't really care because it's it's too important for us to build this as a, as a as a something that people see as valuable uh, and we've seen examples of other companies that have done unscalable things and then figured it out along the way you guys do seed mostly very yes. early stage and you also did early stage with rook's nest entertainment in a sense yeah yeah you seem to be very comfortable uh in that space <laughs> I mean, a big part of that space is picking the right people uh how do you think about that yeah i mean it is something that, so, so to go back to my film days, and you're right, it is about people, even though the first exposure to a project was usually the script, inevitably what defined whether we worked on it or not was, was the director. And I remember thinking when we, we, we did a film called The Witch, and we, were, we, were, we just financed it, we didn't produce that film. But uh, we'd seen the script relatively early on and we looked at it and it was written purely in not just old English, but Jacobian English to be precise, which was like more impenetrable than Shakespeare. So I was like, how is this going to work from a commercial perspective? It's just impossible. But there was something about the project that stuck with my partner, Julia, and she checked in on it a year later or whatever it was, six months later, and they'd worked on the script to make the language a little bit more accessible, although it was still integral and, 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 and representative of the time that the film was set. They'd made it more, what's the right word I'm searching for here? That they, made, they made it easier to understand, I suppose, comprehensible. And that was great. So fine, the script goes on. But it really came down to, you know, the pitch book was fine. The director's previous short film was really good. So we were like, okay, this is great. But this, you know, every film is a risk. Obviously, every company is a risk. This one in particular, as, as, as with any of them, we had to meet the director. And I remember meeting him very clearly 
and was just so struck by his clarity of vision. In fact, he was on his way. He'd been doing some of the casting. He was on his way to Rome to meet the only maker of a certain type of weird costume that was only going to show up for like 10 seconds. I mean, is that he, the level of devotion was incredible. And I was just, you know, the, 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 the deck that he'd put together grouped with just, just being so struck by how clear his vision was and how he was going to execute on that vision was like, okay, we came out of that meeting. They're like, okay, we're in all doubts are out the window. So even, uh, even though much like with a pitch deck for a company, the first exposure of a, you know, for you to take that next step, you have to have seen and, and like the script. It really comes down to, does the director have, you know, are they, can you work with them? Do they have clarity of vision? Do they understand not just the vision, but also how they're going to execute on that vision? And I think some of those things are, are, are relatable to what we look for in founders now, which is very much very similar things. Yes, you have to be able to communicate some of, some of it in a pitch deck uh, because we can't possibly meet every founder it's just that the, in terms of the deals that we see. So yes, the, the pitch deck has to be on point, but if we don't think that we can work with you, there's not, there's no compatibility. It's just, it's not going to work. Or if you don't, if you lack sort of clarity of vision, that's a, that's a significant issue for us. Or if you don't understand how you're going to be able to execute on that vision, that's also a, a significant, there are other bits and pieces, of course, you know, deep understanding of your market, passion for what you're doing is incredibly important track record is preferable but not not always there in early stage so very very similar things that we used that i used to look for in directors with my team at rooks nest entertainment that we look for now in in entrepreneurs in uh, rooks nest ventures in in early stage and i think the great joy of being an early stage investor whether it's in film or in venture is being along for the ride with people who just you know, just so passionate about what they're doing and really get it and seeing them work their magic is awesome. That's a great feeling. And to be able to support it. That's actually why I got into venture in the first place to help support others, you know, achieve their dreams. How do you think about hiring and team building for your own team for Rook's Nest Ventures? Because you're a fairly small team, right? We're a small team. I think, you know, we're, we're about eight right now. I think we'll be nine or, and, and then 10 before too long. But yeah, we're, we're a small team. Obviously, this is one of the significant criticisms that's leveled at, at, at most venture capital firms, which is we, we don't do as we preach. You know, we're not, a, we would never invest in another venture capital type firm because it's, you know, it's, it's all based on manpower and it's not scalable. And, uh, all of that sort of, there's no technology at the heart of it. There's no defensibility or very little. So we're, we're everything that we wouldn't want in our, in, in the businesses that we invest in uh, to some degree. And it's, it's a, it's a criticism that is leveled at venture, but that is the case for us. We, we don't scale in the same way that our portfolio companies do. And we don't have to, you know, if, if, if we're, a team of, you know, it just wouldn't work. If you were a 28 million pound fund, we have to keep the team small to work within our, our remit. And as the fund grows, the team will grow to some extent, but you know, it, it's better for returns for investors and we keep the team smaller and, and not have any uh, dead weight. So we absolutely have to keep it small. In terms of though the team members that we do bring on and how we look at it, uh, from a hiring perspective, it's also important to have, obviously, not be uh, crippled by a lack of capacity as well. That's that's not good. The first thing is obviously, <laughs> from a hiring perspective, feeling what I call feeling the pinch. So we don't need to necessarily preempt any pain. We don't need to go and hire five people because we think that this problem is coming and we're going to need someone to come in and solve it. And that problem's coming. We're going to need someone to come in and solve it. What I like to do is I like to hire the bare minimum to get something done. And when we're feeling the pain, 
or not hire at all for that matter to get something done. And when we're really feeling the pain of not having that person in a role or not having that position, that's when we know it's time to hire somebody for that role. So I will always, and, and, and the rest of the team do as well, push ourselves to, to make sure that we're not hiring superfluously because this may happen or that may happen. It's like, this is a problem for us right now. And it has been for the last couple of months. We need to hire somebody to fix it or to help us to alleviate this problem. And that's what we've done. And then in terms of the hiring process itself, the most important thing is obviously cultural fit. Everyone will tell you that. It's, it's so critical. Culture is, 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 is by far the most important thing. You need to have good cultural fit. Otherwise, it's not going to work out over the long term. And, and, and you know, everyone, I, I, it's so important to build a, a workplace that people want to enjoy, that people enjoy working in and want to, you know, I was going to say want to come into the office, but obviously right now that's not possible. It's where you spend most of your time. And that starts with the people. And it's so important to get that, to get that right. Uh, from a cultural perspective and obviously background and skills and all the rest of it are really important as, as, as well. Um, that goes without saying. So yeah, really look at it from a, from a cultural perspective as, as, as the most important thing and then not over hiring. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, you don't come from a traditional VC background. At, at this point, you're an insider, but back then you were an outsider that came from a completely different industry. What are the biggest differences between film and venture capital? So there are obviously a number in terms of the business and the day-to-day -day workings of how investments work and so on and so forth. There, there are plenty of differences. But one of the first things that I saw let's say it took me a while that I, something that i expected to see in vc that i'd seen in film which which ended up not being the case in film you know scripts are shared very freely films are divided up between financiers you know somewhat equally it was very rare for us to take on the risk of doing an entire film ourselves or or, or doing even even a majority of it in terms of the equity stake because we wanted to split that risk. And just in general, throughout the whole industry, a uh, little bit different once you get up into the upper echelons of studio movies, but certainly within indie and mid-level films, scripts are shared everywhere. And everyone's pitching you and other investors are looking to bring you on as a co-investor to hedge some of the risk. And I expected to see the same kind of thing in in bc and it's been very different it's been very different and it took me quite a while to attune to that say okay well and to understand why it's like i couldn't figure out why you know okay we just talked to this fund and they've sent us this deal which is kind of crappy And then a week later, they've announced some other deal, knowing exactly that, or whatever it is, knowing exactly that that, that would have been in our sweet spot and an awesome deal for us to be a part of. You know, in the film world, there's every chance that we would have had a, ch a possibility of being a part of that film. And it just took me ages to realize that people do share deals, and, and certainly in the angel world, that's true. But lead investors do not tend to share, share great deals with other lead investors because they want it for themselves. And so then you're left with a, that's really when you're left with a decision, which is, and there's a real viable strategy. Am I going to be a lead investor that simply beats those other guys to the deal? Or am I going to focus on being a kind of follow on investor who maybe writes smaller checks and can just fill in rounds that other really well-respected VCs are, are, are leading. And that's a strategic decision that you have to make as a fund. And we've really opted to be the, the lead. We will follow in some cases, and we are really friendly with other firms, and we'll try to employ a little bit of both. But ostensibly at our core, we're a lead fund. And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say we're as guilty as the others in terms of not sharing the really best deals with other lead investors because we want those deals. And that's, that's the honest truth. And, and that's a big difference from how we operated in film. Let's change gears a bit again. And let's talk about, 
the future of media. Um, you play yes. right now exclusively in, in, in the media infrastructure area. Yeah. What are the biggest opportunities for you right now? Um, or what are you looking at? What's, what, what's piquing your interest right now? In the short term or the long term? Both. Let's break it up. Okay. So in the short term, I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that are playing in this space, but audio is, is, is really interesting. And I think, you know, looking back on it, a lot of success in, in media or media companies is capitalizing on new technologies. That's, it's not just for media, it's for other, it's for other, obviously for many other industries as well. But for media, if you think back to, you know, uh, the invention of the radio or television or the internet, obviously all of those major paradigm shifting technology advances in hardware, critical to the evolution of media. And obviously the smartphone as well. So in, in that regard, over the long term, yes, there are software plays that are super interesting and I'm happy to talk about that. But it's also to look at the hardware and where the hardware is going that opens up new possibilities. Or, or let's say opens up the most number of wide ranging possibilities is probably a better way of putting it. Advances in software and other technologies help to build some fantastic companies. There's no doubt about it. And I think gaming, there's some really interesting examples of companies that are coming out of gaming to that end, which I would love to talk more about. But, but from in terms of where the biggest or widest range of opportunities come in media, it's almost always on the tail of innovation in hardware. And, and that goes back a long way, as I said. So for me, you know, AirPods, a lot of media investors or, or, or consumer facing VCs uh, will say audio is a, is a really hot area. It is a really hot area right now. And I don't think uh, I think a lot of people were gearing up for smart speakers to kind of crack that nut. I don't think anybody expected AirPods to do it, but they have. And all of a sudden now you've got access to your, your, your link to technology in at times when you weren't really before. And you're, yeah, you were listening to music and so on, but it was a different experience. And now it's like people will spend significantly more time with the earphones on or in because of the comfort factor. You know, the fact that you don't have the wire, you don't have to plug it into to anything. It's there, it's connected, it's on. Uh, you just need to plop it in your ear, that's it. It, it. You're good to go. You can even just press it to press play. It's a huge amount of convenience there. And that increase in convenience and comfort has led to an explosion in demand for audio content. And Podcasts are a really great example of that, to be honest with you. You know, we've been investing and in looking into podcasts for the last 12 to 18 months. We've made two investments, three investments, sorry, in audio as a whole, one of them in podcasts around attribution. It's such a nascent industry, but it's growing so rapidly. I think we just did a survey that we're going to release the results of soon, where I think that um, 25% of the respondents to the survey had listened to a podcast, 75% hadn't. And these are people that are in or around technology and, 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 and VC and media and so on. It's just staggering. The room for growth there is, and the, the rate at which it's growing, the room for growth in, in podcasts and audio content as a whole is, is, is great. And uh, when you look at the size of the, the radio industry, it's not insignificant, the size that that industry will reach. It's not going to become, you know, uh, as big as like the automobile industry or the agriculture industry, but it is by media standards going to become a really meaningful industry. And um, we're really excited to, to, to back companies that are a part of that, that are helping content creators, whether they're a platform or whether they're like pod sites, which is, you know, attribution, ad tech, and so on, I think is really interesting. And then you have, you know, audio offshoots of, or audio, let's say, interpretations of businesses that have been successful in other sectors. So for instance, we, we have an investment in a, in a company which is audio first education. And, and they'll be launching 
later this year and it's really like i guess if if udemy was an audio first company this is kind of what it would look like so there are there are fantastic opportunities there in audio that that is something in an area that we're super excited about and what you realize is when you look at it most of the internet is pretty mute and you're like that's a whole lot of real estate that can be that content can be created for that and that can be monetized frankly speaking uh, a lot of the internet is still text a lot of it is still without sound so i think there's huge possibilities there obviously for video as well over the longer term there are a couple of interesting opportunities i think that you know looking to ar uh, and vr from a hardware perspective is is probably sensible as you know what what is the next piece of hardware that's going to come along we're really in a rut now around ar and vr it's really in that kind of trough of disillusionment and you see that with what's going on in that industry right now there's a lot of naysayers but there are some real champions and Jason Horowitz is still really big on it and i can't see a better i i, I struggle to see an argument of where what other piece of hardware is going to come out that is going to provide as big a shift or as important a shift as AR and, and, and VR is the next hardware. Mind you, nobody saw um, AirPods coming and, and creating as big a shift as they could, so who knows? And I think mobile-wise, we're pretty pretty optimized. Like there's, you know, there there are improvements that can be made on a software basis, but the range of opportunities is much smaller than when the you know, whenever Apple released their headset or whatever uh, the big shift is in in AR and VR. And then on the software side, just very quickly, I'm really personally excited about deep tech companies being born out of gaming use cases or the gaming industry. I think that's a, that's a particular thesis of mine personally that I really enjoy looking at companies that are a part of that. I don't know exactly the reasons for it, but there are really significant companies that are coming out of gaming that will have huge impact in other industries a really obvious example is improbable perhaps it's because you know tech is 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 fairly easily it's not easy to deploy in gaming but let's say that uh, gaming companies are very open to using new tech and gaming and 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 users are very open to consuming in in new and interesting ways and it has just there's a lot of creativity there there's a lot of innovation and there's a lot of smart people working in that field and i think frankly a lot of really smart and innovative people have grown up playing games and wanting to be a part of that in some way and you look at you know it's you're potentially talking about an industry that could theoretically give birth to not just the next big social network but also the next big operating system and those are in, in social network and you know easy use case uh, easy example is fortnite operating system an easy example is improbable or hadian which is a london based company are doing really exciting things and those companies will go on to do hugely significant things outside of gaming or could do at least and that's really exciting and then the obvious end point for that whole uh, thesis is the metaverse the so called metaverse and if, if you know Matthew Ball has written extensively about it, and and, and others too, and uh, Ready Player One is the is the pop culture example of that. Do you think the metaverse is a good thing? It's a good angle to go after. You know, I don't know. As an investor, yes, uh, absolutely. I think it's 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 obviously way 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 too early. But I think if you were to maybe distill that argument down from metaverse, which we're still decades away from, if if it ever happens, to where we are today in gaming and 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 social networks, it's really clear that there are downsides. It's really very clear that there are downsides, and it, it is something that we look at in our companies as well as to like from an ethical point of view, is this the right thing to do? Are these, you know, you see it a lot in 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 the way that the traditional mechanics of free to play are set up, which is, or, or or the way that social networks go about 
or let's say the bigger social networks, particularly Facebook and Instagram, you know, with these, with the sort of dopamine cycles and, uh, and, and really squeezing everything out of you. Those, those are things that we're aware of and that we have to make a judgment call on each time. And a lot of the time, you know, it's the intentions of the founders. What kind of company do they want to build? What kind of culture is it? Is it the type of culture that they're going to want to just bring their users in and just wring them dry of every penny uh, that they can and, and, and leave them sort of burnt out and penniless? Or is it the type of company that actually has something that, to say that is constructive and meaningful and fun and they're building good quality games and so on? And they deserve to get paid for, for for building those games. Definitely, you know, definitely the latter, and is 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 really important. In some ways, it's unfortunate that free to play seems to be the only reliable way of monetizing mobile games these days, because of the dynamics that it um, plays on. But there are ways to do it, and we have worked with founders who are doing it in sensible, ethical ways. And it's very important for games companies to keep an eye on. In fact, uh, one of our companies, 12 Traits, works in this area and are extremely passionate about providing companies with data in a way that allows them to get out of those types of cycles and loops and so on because, you know, and, and they're, they're able to extract the data in a, in a more beneficial way from the user. What's your most ambitious idea right now? My my personal most ambitious idea or the yes, my personal most ambitious idea is to build a, a a very meaningful VC fund. You know, it's it's something it's not easy to do. Obviously, we, there's very very little margin for error. We have to be the the top fund in this field if we want to uh, match my ambitions for what I want to do. That isn't to say that we're not friendly. We're extremely friendly with the other funds in our sector and we share deals with them and we share the risk and so on. But from a brand perspective, we, we want to be up there. We want to be up there with the biggest funds in the world and that will take time, but it's incredibly important for us. It will take time and it will take a successful track record. In terms of more interesting ideas around uh, uh, business and so on, we kick around stuff all the time in the in the office and um and there are some things that we act on um one of the big things and the big trends that we're seeing and will continue to see is the globalization of the services industry and particularly technology so you know up until now globalization was around goods and it was around it was a little bit less around services although you know telemarketing and so on was was obviously completely globalized i think now you're talking about the service economy whether it's developers or c-suite or any other member of a service company agents recruitment whatever it is you're going to see i think a lot more uh globalization of that that'll have some could have some really interesting effects uh some people have written about this uh, much more extensively than, than I've read about it around, you know, potential depression of wages amongst service industry workers, because before you used to be, you have to be in the office close to your job. The Valley is a perfect example of that. Uh, now, all of a sudden, you're in Argentina, I'm here in London. There are plenty of uh, companies who, in fact, one of our portfolio companies has just hired someone from Argentina and they're, they're, you know, remote company, they're like, we're going to hire the next person from Argentina. Because why? Because the talent is just as good and they're cheaper because the living costs are cheaper. So you, I think you're going to see this kind of redistribution away from, to some extent anyway, away from major centers like Silicon Valley, London, New York, LA, and redistributed to other parts of the world where, you know, where talent is right now. They just they just don't, the companies just haven't been able to access them or haven't wanted to for whatever reason. And they'll be cheaper. And you, you saw it in manufacturing and there's every reason to believe that at least to some extent it will happen in services too. You know, real estate will obviously change off the back of that as well. That's amazing and a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you again. Hey, this is Guns again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.